0: Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to begin reading in verse 13. Mark chapter 12, begin reading in verse 13. I'm going to read from the NIV today. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Listen to this. Butternosing. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy and he said, Hey, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at the denarius. And they brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription upon the coin? And they said Caesar's. And he said to them, We'll give back to Caesar." What is Caesar's? And give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I'm going to talk this morning about politics. Now, I need you to be patient and I need you to be open and allow room for me over the next few moments in a public setting to struggle to find the right words. I need you to be gracious David Lang, many of you may have heard his music. He was a great composer. He describes his craft this way. He said he writes music that he knows is very incredibly difficult for the world's even best musicians. And he says he does this because he says, I write for live performance. And he says, I need the audience to feel the danger of the musician struggling to find the right note. He said, I don't write music that's easy for me to do. I write the hardest music so that when I stand before people, people are thinking I'm about to mess up. This is what keeps them engaged. This is what keeps them on the front of their seat. So this moment, this morning, will be me in front of you, struggling to find the right words to catch you in the moment on the edge of your seat. And my hope is that if I keep my heart in the right place and you keep your heart in the right place as you listen... As I'm struggling to find the notes and you are called in the moment, you will hear the Lord speaking in and through and even behind or on top of or even against my words about what He wants from you at this time. Now, this morning, I'm not assuming that everybody in here is a believer. So if you're not a believer, praise God. We're we're glad that you're here. You don't Follow Jesus. We're a church that's absolutely open for folks like that to attend and be a part of our church. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, let me just say something to you. I want you, for the next few moments, to try to hear this as Christians trying to make sense of the political madness we find ourselves in. How do we make sense of our political moments? The question, I think, begged, begging to be asked is, what does Jesus say about politics? The title of this message is Politics of Jesus, Politics of Man. Now what I want to do from the outset of this message is you bear with me to give you a few brief recaps, I should say, of American political thought that has shaped the Christian understanding of the state And how Christians historically have been involved in the state. How they've interacted with government. How they've interacted with politics. Once we give the brief recaps, then what we will do is move from there to how we live as responsible disciples of Jesus in our culture today. And again, as I said, I want to ask for your grace. Because this, what I'm about to engage on, is a nuclear level controversy. There's nothing higher. There's nothing that carries more... Banter and engagement and emotion in our moment. And there's so many opinions around it, right? And here's the hardest part about it is everyone thinks they're right. And everyone is at least partially wrong. There's no one fully right. Everybody is at least partially wrong in some way. And so it's very challenging to look at political theory and Christian involvement. But we have to. You say, Craig, why do we have to? Because for many people in the Christian faith, this is a make it or break it issue. It's a make-it-or-break-it issue in their own Christian journey right now. This election, it doesn't take me long to communicate to you, is disproportionately loaded with angst, disproportionately loaded with fear, and disproportionately loaded with hatred. Many university professors, of which I love young adults, are recording right now in American universities the most heightened levels of depression and anxiety Toward the issue of politics, young people not knowing what to do with the political climate that they are engaging. For the first time, I would say, in the last hundred years, you know, I've been used to people leaving churches because they broke up with a boyfriend or girlfriend and they need to go to a new church to find a new boyfriend or girlfriend. I've been used to people leaving churches because they've changed a little bit theologically. Or maybe they go to other churches because you know there's a change in the philosophy of ministry. But now people are leaving our churches in America by the droves because of politics, political engagement, what they're, what they're believing. And legally, <laughs> as a pastor, I'm not allowed to endorse a candidate. But some people, they don't seem to care. They want pastors. They want all leaders. They want endorsements. They want renunciations. And they want pastors to inject a godlike hope or a godlike fear into politics. So, to understand how we got here, we need to understand Jesus, America, and politics as a whole. Let's start. The United States of America, there is almost no country in all of recorded history that has such a mashup of Jesus and political engagement. When you look at the history of the world, America and its engagement with politics is a hash-up. The founding fathers, the biblical values, and the Judeo-Christian thinking that permeated, permeated their mind and their behavior is astounding. It's jarring. Now listen to me. I'm not making any kind of statement that the founding fathers were anyway evangelical disciples of Jesus Christ. I actually don't believe they were. I actually believe they were deists. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. So I'm not saying that they're just active evangelical disciples. But what I am saying is that they at least had a culturally formed opinion of Judeo-Christian values. It was something that was very intrinsic to their life. They were culturally formed into the vision of Jesus and to the vision of the kingdom of God. The constitution that we hold dearly, the constitutional framework is influenced by Christian thought. Yet at the same time, many of our founding fathers had slaves. So watch the the uniqueness of our nation. On the one hand, you have the narrative of the value of humanity. We believe in the value of all human beings. And on the other hand, you have the same people espousing rights to own other people and beat those people. So think of our culture, 1861 to 1865, you have the Civil War. And if you study the Civil War, it's pretty fascinating because it's so stunning that both sides thought God was on their side. Both sides were praying conflicting prayers to the same God, thinking God would answer theirs above and beyond the others. They were convinced in the South that God was on their side, and they were convinced in the North that God was on their side. So you had these conflicting prayers prayed to the same God. Later on, after the Civil War, you have a conflict between science and religion and politics. Think, for instance, the Scopes Monkey Trial where Christians and their ability to control the greater American culture begin to be edged out by a secular worldview. Now, when Christians feel that something's being taken from them, we usually respond very terribly. So in the Scopes Monkey Trial, now that the nation is moving away from a biblical worldview to a secular kind of scientific worldview, the fundamentalists and the modernists begin to get in debates about the authority of the Bible. They begin to debate the authority of Scripture. And Christians and Christianity up to this point in American history had the perspective that America and the world were broken and so we as the church should be withdrawn from political engagement. After all, the church's main business was soul-winning and waiting for the return of Jesus. That was the focus. So changing the culture seemed like a lost enterprise. So in the outset of our Christian reality, it was to stay disengaged from political engagement. But at the same time, mainline Protestant denominations, some of you were a part of those, maybe in your earlier childhood years, and particularly those liberal Christians. What did they do? They did the opposite. They began to address the social events of the day. They weren't considered, they weren't uh, happier with a gospel that only waited for Jesus to come or only waited for a desire for soul winning. They wanted political engagement for today. So in 1947, a man named Carl Henry, he was a statesman of Christian thought. He wrote a book, you'll see it behind me, called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. Now, what a title. The title says everything. If you've never read it, hold or reserve your, your, your judgment until you read it. And what did Carl Henry do in this? The title says it all. Leave it up for a moment. He said, shouldn't we care just a little bit about the world we live in? He was calling Christians to say, you can't just say you're waiting for the sweet by and by. You've got to be worried about the, the culture that we live in today. Now more movements were connected to this in the 1940s. You had the civil rights movement where the explicit Bible rights were now being espoused and ministers began to get involved and they began to use their own pulpits to speak politically. Think of the civil rights era. In 1973, it led to one of the the, the more prominent social reengagements of the evangelical church. 40 prominent, well-known national evangelical pastors, they signed a document in Chicago called the Chicago Declaration of evangelical social concern. So in 1970s now, this was a push to get Christians that were in America that were more concerned about culture and not just souls in the coming kingdom of God. This was a call to a prophetic witness to say, we as believers must get involved in politics. We can't just sit back and say, we can be separate from it. From this came a man named Ron Sider. He wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And again, what was he doing? He was alerting evangelicals to the importance of what? Engagement now. Not just waiting for a coming kingdom, but being involved now. But then something happened. Something happened that woke up most disengaged, in times obsessed, soul-winning fundamentalist. Something that they had not, previous to this point, been really involved in politics. You know what it was? It was an interview. It was an interview heard around the world. Now that's not what it was called, but that's what I call it. President Jimmy Carter was interviewed in Playboy magazine. Playboy magazine. And when he got interviewed in Playboy magazine, he said these words. He said, I've looked on a lot of women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. What was he doing? His intent was to say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And the shock of America wasn't that a Christian man confessed to adultery in his heart. That was very common. All men know that. All women know that. That wasn't the shock. The shock of the nation was that the POTUS... The president of the United States would give an interview in Playboy magazine. Now listen, y'all. In our pornified culture, Playboy is closing its doors. It's like Victoria's Secret. No one looks at at Playboy anymore, okay? It is is soft, soft, soft porn, okay? But in that day, it was huge. It was a debacle. Playboy was an icon of immorality, so a group of people in America could not believe that this is where America was headed. That the president of the United States would descend to the depths of an interview with Playboy magazine. So watch this, church. A giant shift happened. Evangelicals and fundamentalists shifted from being separatist to cultural activist. You've got to see this. So now we have the 70s where all the end times obsessed evangelicals that had nothing to do with politics... Moved away from being separatist in the political world to being cultural activists. And the reason it was such a staggering shift is these people, what? The evangelicals were now partnering with people that they had condemned for uh, over a century saying, oh, they're immoral. And they partnered with those people for the sake of national morality. So for the first time in U.S. history, you have evangelicals partnering with people they don't believe in theologically or believe with. Major, major shift in our nation. So one author calls it this. He says, historically and contrary to its detractors, another democratic quality of the religious right has been its religious, watch this, inclusiveness. Falwell's majority was specifically designed to embrace Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and Mormons. The pro-life movement involved close cooperation between fundamentalists and Catholics. Establishing a political coalition based on shared moral values has required the toning down of theological exclusivity. We had to tone it down. Why? And we had to overcome the prejudices that we had previously. So now in the 70s, we see a move towards more political engagement. In some sense, watch this church, the moral majority unleashed prophets. So Christians became prophets. They became uh, individuals who were priests. Next slide. And kings. Let me give you an example. Prophets were now released. Those with critical distance and spoke to the culture. James Dobson. Why do you think his program started? Focus on the family. He maintained political prophetic distance as a prophet to declare, we will not succumb to the values that the culture puts on our families. Then you had priests like Billy Graham. Billy Graham, seemingly, I know it's not true, met with every president in the history of the United States of America. And they listened to him and confided in him. They brought him close. You had these priests that were stepping up to power. These priests that were stepping up to political engagement. And then you had those who were kings and king makers, like Pat Robertson who literally sought to run for president himself. Why? To get America back on track. And this, my friends, is what many of you, and listen moms and dads, many of your kids have reacted against. The decline of the moral majority. Because after decades of strong political involvement, the family has functionally fallen apart and James Dobson has done nothing. Porn is rampant and destroying our adolescence. Gay marriage was legalized anyways. And many Christian leaders were hypocrites, discrediting the movement of Christianity as a whole because they were caught in sex scandals and financial impropriety. Now, if that wasn't enough, on top of that, we have Face 9-11, which many conservatives have now said is God's judgment against America for her lack of God. Now we have a war against Islam where God's on our side. And then we have the reaction to that. We have a change of generational leadership. Generational leadership is shifting very quickly in the modern age. And what we are left with in this election called 2020 is, let me just quote it for you, an idolatrous disillusionment from almost everybody. One author put it this way. The recent political cycle has shattered the lens through which the American church has looked at politics through much of our lifetimes. We know biblically that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, and we know he cares about the kind of world we're creating, but those theological principles seem largely disconnected from the realities we face in an increasingly post-Christian culture. Our societal problems seem so complex and nuanced that the answers we've been given no longer seem applicable. How should the church engage our culture? Many talk about becoming more missional. Others talk about taking our culture back for Jesus. But it has been my experience that the typical Christian and rather than feeling fired up or threatened by these ideological campaigns, simply feels sad, confused, and overwhelmed. And you're sitting here on church in October 2020, and I could be honest, most of you are sad, confused, and overwhelmed. On top of that, Christianity seems to have a pretty poor track record whenever we are given the reins of power. We have a really bad track record. People say, Christians should remain distant and out of politics. Man, just build the church. Don't worry about politics. Remain your prophetic distance. Elol, who was a French professor, philosopher, this is what he said. He said, politics is the church's worst problem. It's a constant temptation. The occasion of our greatest disasters. The trap continually set for her by the prince, speaking of Satan, of this world. So they're saying, let's not get entangled in other things. Right, church? It's easy. That should be our response to politics, right? Or wrong? See, it's not that simple, is it? Part of the reason the Nazi regime was able to function was because of the passivity of the German Lutheran Church. The passivity of the German Lutheran Church enabled the Nazi regime to be established. Honestly, if you study history, they took a back seat and did nothing to engage or respond to the political climate. So there is a passivity of the church and a culture that leads to disaster. We know historically now, if the church is passive, culture destructs itself. On the other side, you have the black Baptist churches in the civil rights era using biblical principles to bring about justice through our political process. And life, although there's still room to be improved, is much better for blacks in America today than it was in the 1950s. Much, much better. So laws are Powerful. Government is powerful. Why? Because they normalize and they penalize us. Government and laws disciple us into certain kinds of people with a cultural imagination, an ethical vision, and practices and laws that shape who we become. Laws change culture. So laws matter. And it's not that simple. Now this brings us back to Jesus in the moment. How, do you, how about that for a nice little introduction? The context of this passage is Jesus feeling the pull and the political weight of his day. He's feeling the exact same weight we feel as we watch our president come down with COVID and everyone reinterpret whether or not that person's actually had COVID or didn't have COVID and what do we believe and what do we not believe and the political weight and the tension of all that we feel. Okay, That's where we are as a nation. That's where Jesus was in the text. The context of this passage, can I tell you just quick, is Jesus feeling the pull and the weight of political involvement in his day. At this point in the gospel, this is Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12, it's the last week of Jesus' life. Now feel this for a minute. He's gone from his Galilean ministry where he's been on the outskirts to the center of religious power. He's walked straight up into Pennsylvania Avenue. He is in Jerusalem and he's there during the Passover festival. That means God fearing Jews from all over the world are traveling to Jerusalem. The town is swelling. It's full of people with a subversive narrative. The nation is at a an upheaval. Passover, by the way, what was it for the Jews? It was a celebration of Israel and the fact that she had been in an oppressive regime and God raised up a deliverer for her named Moses and brought them out of Egyptian captivity. Did you know that the Romans knew about the Passover too? Did you know the Romans were so scared of the Jews during Passover that what they did is they had their own triumphal entry when Jesus had his? This is what they did. They marched an extra legion of troops from Caesarea Maritime down to Jerusalem to make sure the Jews didn't get too excited about their religion. They were very scared in these moments. Because the Jews would celebrate Passover with such fervency and with such ignition that that it would make the Romans feel a little bit scared. So you have, watch this, a cultural expectation for God to raise up a deliverer. You have all the Jews with promises in their mind of the Old Testament that God would send a deliverer. You have everybody with expectation that something's happening. The Romans bring in extra troops. There's incredible tension here. And Jesus now walks into the city, into the temple. He comes into the very center of political ideology. He comes to the very centrifuge of this moment. And he looks around. And the Bible, if you read it very carefully, it's almost like Jesus crosses his arms and has taken a good survey of the political ideology of his day. And the Bible says he leaves because it was evening time and he wanted to come back the next day. My interpretation is Jesus wanted to do what he's about to do in the broad daylight for everybody to see. So he goes back out on the mountainside. And the next morning he comes in, what does he do? He clears the temple. He overturns the money changers. He cleanses the temple, the place of worship, the place or what we call the house of prayer. And then he preaches against the religious leaders who ask him, By whose authority do you do this? And what does Jesus do? He responds with a parable essentially saying, You are illegitimate rulers. You leaders, you're illegitimate. Let's read Mark chapter 12. Verse 12, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him. Why? Because he just made them mad. Because they knew he had spoken this parable of illegitimate rulers against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went away. Now, do you see the building tension? The political tension's high. The scene is set for a confrontation. And now we go back to our original text again, verses 13 through 17. So Jesus is trying to be caught. And they come to him and say, Jesus, should we pay the imperial tax? And he said, bring me a coin. Why are you trying to trap me? He knew they were hypocrites. And he said, hey, whose image is on this? They said, Caesar's. He said, give... To Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now here's the amazing thing. The text said the Herodians and the Pharisees plotted together to catch Jesus. Herodians hated Pharisees. Pharisees were built by God to fight against Herodians. I mean that's essentially two enemy groups coming together to try to catch Jesus. Nowhere in all of history are Herodians working with Pharisees but what do they do and they're coming together together to take out Jesus so they work really hard they get together they find a great question to try to trap him and this was a question that was not empty folks this was a question about political and politics for God's people now let me tell you real quick what the imperial tax was the imperial tax was a day's wages it was an entire day's wages paid as a denarius and every adult male in the entire nation had to pay this You say, Craig, what did it pay for? It paid for Rome's ability to increase their army and keep oppressing the people. So you had to pay a tax that would cause you to be oppressed greater. Jesus is about to say, I want you to do that. You, you, You need to stick with me. You're about to pay a tax that is causing you to be oppressed even more. You're paying a tax to pay for a wrong government, a different government, Wrong government in your eyes, to keep you oppressed. The equivalent would be paying Pharaoh to keep you in slavery. In 6 AD, at Jesus' time, there was another Jewish town right outside Jerusalem that hated this. They revolted against it, so Rome came in and crushed them, killed them. In 66 AD, our t- the temple of Jerusalem was sacked. You know why it was sacked? Because the people in Jerusalem said, we're not paying the imperial tax. So Rome came in and said, we'll take your temple. So watch this. Jesus is in this tension. Watch this. If he supports paying the tax, he's not the Messiah because he's an imposter. But if he opposes it, they can crush him by the Roman Empire. Watch this. Jesus is at the heart of his ministry, at the center of power, in the middle of the Jewish feast, filled with expectation and tension. He will lose his life or he will lose his momentum. And yet he has to answer. So what does he do? He does what only Jesus can do. Hey, whose image is on it? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Three things I see of what Jesus teaches about government and politics from this passage. Number one, are you ready? Christians should recognize and obey government. Christians should recognize and obey government. Look at verse 17. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Let me give you a picture of the coin. This is a denarius. Jesus just endorsed a blasphemous coin with a false God claiming to be a real God, pay it and then let it be used to oppress you. What is Jesus doing? He is showing the people of God that a shift is now coming in the church of Jesus Christ. We no longer, for the rest of time, will live under a theocracy but under a government that God has ordained. This is a staggering shift for us to understand and for the Jews to understand. Watch this. For Jesus to endorse a secular government and says, pay the tax even if you don't agree with the tax, that is a reframing of God's people and their engagement with the larger world. What Jesus is saying is this. It's not just that Jewish government, but all government is a legitimate establishment of God for humanity. Up to this point, they'd only lived under a king, which was under God's reign. From this point forward, God says, through Jesus, Christians won't do that anymore. You'll live under other kinds of governments. You'll recognize them, and you'll submit to them. Government exists. Why, Craig? Because God has ordained it as a part of the created order. You see this from the very beginning in Genesis 1.28. I can't turn there, but he tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. You know what he's telling them? He's saying, govern the creation and bring order out of chaos. In other words, ready? You politi- politician, political involvement activists will really like this. You probably won't hear me say this many times, but I'm going to say it. Government is an original job description for human beings. God gave human beings a job description of government to bring governing order out of chaos. God is sovereign, but he uses servants and he uses laws to accomplish his purposes. Now watch this. How we therefore interact with authority is a great indicator of the submissiveness of our own hearts and to God's authority itself. Let's just think about scripture for a moment. Joseph, through his involvement in government, was able to save nations from famine. We see Nehemiah, which was the highest part, the cupbearer to the king involved in government. He was used by God to bring about restoration and rebuild the walls in 52 days. Jeremiah tells us to pray for the cities we are exiled into. Did you know Jews today still use that as their greatest witness in the foreign countries? That's why God blesses them. That's their greatest missional strategy. Wherever they're sent in cities, they pray for the cities. God blesses the cities. They go back to their city. That's what Jeremiah tells us to do. Esther, what did she do? She was in government to save her people from genocide, right? Daniel was in government speaking truth to power. He guided and directed the government through two separate empires. He was through the Babylonian empire and the Persian Empire. Later in the gospel, guess what? Mark's gospel, Jesus tells Pilate, right there, he's about to die at the hands of Pilate, and Jesus tells Pilate, he says, you ain't got no power. The only power you have is the power from above. So watch this. Jesus will submit to the very government that will crucify him, and he will acknowledge its right to exist. And says, your power, Pilate, came from my dad and I'm going to submit to you. Now, I don't know how you're feeling so far. I'm feeling great up here. (laughs) Romans, the book of Romans was written to Rome. Rome was godless. Rome was like America. The letter of Romans is written to people in the midst of that godless city, that empire. Now, watch this. Imagine for a moment. Imagine being in a house church in Rome on a Sunday night and you're enjoying your agape meal. It's a great church service. You're out there on the balcony and you're enjoying your meal and all of DP Rome is hanging out on the balcony. And all of a sudden, the leader comes in and says, hey, 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 gather up. It's time for church to start. We have no five-minute countdown because screens aren't yet invented. We'll be beginning in three and a half minutes, all right? Tonight, we've got a special treat. The Apostle Paul has written a letter to us. We're going to read it. Oh, the Apostle Paul? Yeah! Woo! I love Apostle Paul. We'll be in there in a minute. I'm going to hit the restroom right quick. They go in. They all gather together. It's time to read the Apostle Paul's letter. So here they are. Romans chapter 1. They're like, I got it. Yep. I see the wrath of God being revealed in Rome. Got it. Whoop, Romans 2. Oh, I see the favoritism. I got it. Yeah. And then you get to Romans 13. And everybody's there. They're eating their agape meal. And they're sipping back on their wine. And they're just enjoying the evening. And, and then they get to Romans 13, verse 1-7. through seven. Let everyone, Christians, here in Rome, be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which has God established. And the authorities that have exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. <laughs> they spit their wine out. Their food comes out of their mouth. And those who do so will bring judgment against themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be what? Commended. He goes on and says, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers don't bear the sword, Paul said, for no reason. They're God's servants. They're agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That's why you also pay taxes. Keep paying the imperial tax, by the way. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full-time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, give them revenue. If you owe respect, give them respect. If you owe them honor, then give them honor. Y'all, these are people that are culturally scorned for being Christians. If not, I could make the argument some of them are already being persecuted for the Christian faith and Paul says submit to the government. Now, it would be cool if this only appeared one time, but it doesn't. It appears two times and three times. So Paul later writes, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 through 4, I urge you then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and everybody in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. This pleases our Savior who wants all people to be saved and all people to come to a knowledge of his truth. Peter, Peter is about to be crucified by the Roman state upside down. And he writes... Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor who's about to hang me upside down as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the king. What is government, Craig? Government is a gift For human flourishing and Christians should participate and submit. Now this begs two other questions. you ready? Number one, what's the purpose of government? And number two, what do Christians bring to government when they participate in it? Can I answer that? I want to answer you really quickly from Gershner's book called City of Man how I've compiled these into one list. What's the purpose of government? Here is the purpose of government. I see five reasons. Number one, the government is to bring order. Number two, the government is to bring justice. Number three, the government is to bring virtue. Number four, the government is to bring prosperity. Number five, the government is to bring safety. Safety. Now, what do Christians bring to the government? What do we bring to bear on it? Let me just say something real quick. Rather than an unrealistic idealized utopian society with no need for government and, and people say in America today we should just all get alone and we need to remove all boundaries and controls and people will thrive organically if you give them freedom and defund the police and it's going to be amazing and everybody's just going to look out for their own good and they're gonna, people are going to thrive organically in a global society of peace and unity. Can I just say, it seems from human history that is naive to say the least. Most of history tells us this, church. The strong exploit the weak. There is oppression and justice at every turn. And the purpose of government is to establish the order for people. Listen to me. The only people who thrive in chaos are predators and opportunists. Normal people require order. You, You need to hear me. That's where I won't back up. Normal people require order. Only opportunists and predators thrive in chaos. So the role of government is to establish order. Number two, the role of government is to establish justice. What is that? That's a system of checks and balances, a system of fairness where we can trust the right thing will be enforced. If the right thing's not enforced, you have every right as an American citizen to protest that. Use it. Justice. Number three, what's the role of government? It exists to uh, cultivate virtue. Now listen to me, church. I want to be very quick here. American democracy depends on millions of people doing the right thing every day when no one else is looking. And listen, virtue is required for a democracy or democracy falls. Our democracy is dependent on everybody, millions of us at least, doing the right thing every day. That's the only way it survives. Number four, the government exists to create prosperity. In other words, to create context where people can flourish. Human flourishing can happen. And number five, The government provides safety so we aren't constantly under threat from other nations and from people within our own nation. Now watch this. We can see that when these things work, people work well together. Guess what happens? People flourish. And God is glorified. Now, second question. What do Christians bring to bear on the government that's unique? Why should then we get involved politically? Well, we know we're called to care for our neighbor... I'm going to give you five things that I think Christians uniquely bring to politics. You ready? Number one, Christians bring a vision of human dignity. What do you mean a vision of human dignity? We as Christians believe every human is made in the image of God. No matter what societal issue we're looking at, no matter what legislative issue we're looking at, every human is created in the image of God. And every human therefore has intrinsic value. You know what Hitler called people he didn't like? Hitler called people he didn't like useless eaters. They're taking up food. Christians insist everybody bears the imago day. We all bear the image of God. Listen, Christians say everybody matters because everybody matters to God. And didn't we make this claim in the Roman Empire? Do you know how counter- cultural it was for Christians to claim that women, children, and slaves matter in the Roman Empire? But what did the New Testament believers do? They claimed that women, slaves, and, and children mattered in the Roman Empire. We still make that claim today. Here's the second thing Christians bring to bear on politics. A disproportionate concern for the poor and vulnerable a disproportionate concern for the poor and the vulnerable. We realize that Matthew chapter 25, which I hear every social activist using today on my Facebook, I may have to go silent until the end of November, or at least the middle. Every political activist says... That Matthew 25, Christians, is a judgment against the person. It's not. Go back and read it. Matthew 25 is a judgment against the nations. Read the start of the passage. It doesn't say Craig Mosgrove will be held accountable personally for how he deals with the less fortunate. It says nations will be brought to judgment by how they handle the less fortunate. We could go on and on there. Number three, Christians bring what? They bring, and this doesn't sound like a gift, but it is a gift they bring the gift of the suspicion of human nature. We are very suspicious of human nature. Now, even though we're made in the image of God, and we believe everybody's made in the image of God, let me tell you, Christians believe that people are primarily bad, not primarily good. Don't we? That's what Jesus says about us. There is no one who does good, no, not one, who is righteous. Okay, We believe humans are primarily bad, not primarily good. And we feel like human history backs that up a little bit. This means when we set up government, we believe in checks and balances that they must be put in place. Why? Because people fall into temptation. So what does this do? This brings accountability to our leadership. Here's the fourth thing Christians bear on politics. We bring a priority of the other. We bring a priority or a responsibility to the other. We welcome and include all the outcasts. We welcome in the outsider. We don't we don't disclude the outsider. We welcome in the insi- outsider. Listen to me. You know in Eugene Peterson's message translation John 14 or John 114 it said Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus took on flesh. Listen to me. I want to ask you a question. If Jesus's move is to move into the neighborhood, what spirit is behind the urge to keep others from moving into your neighborhood? I'm going to ask that question again. If the Jesus move is to move into the neighborhood, what spirit is behind the urge we have to keep others from moving into our neighborhood? And lastly, fifthly, Christians bring the... And we don't like to talk about this one. We bring the power and the favor of God to politics. It is crazy, y'all, how much prophecy, dream interpretation, prayer, fasting, and miraculous intervention accompany people when they get in high levels of government in the Bible. In the Bible. Joseph got where he was through what? Character? No. Some would argue that, but dream interpretation, as did Daniel. What was Esther's tools? Fasting. For a nation, Christians bring these things to bear on political involvement. So let me recap real quick, because some of you are zoned out. What's the purpose of government? We gave five things. What's the Christian involvement in that political government? A vision of human dignity, concern for the poor and vulnerable, suspicion of human nature, responsibility to the other, and the power and favor of God. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to quit talking for a moment so you realize I quit speaking. All right, welcome back. Okay, you may be asking the question now. Why are you going on and on about this, Pastor Craig? Hear me. The next time someone asks you, and they will ask you as a Christian, hey, how do you make sense of politics? What, what should we expect from our leaders? Uh, LeBron's doing real good. if for anything, please take a screenshot of this and open up your phone and say, well, I'm glad you asked because I think the five purposes of government are, and I think Christians can bring to bear these five things. You can actually sound intelligent and educated about Christians' role in government. Now, it's important we understand because we need to, we need to shape what's happening. Let me give you Exhibit A. William Wilberforce, he worked in government with the five purposes of government with a vision of What? A concern for the other, a suspicion of human nature, a desire for the intrinsic value. And what did William Wilberforce do? He eradicated slavery in England. He had such a sweeping reform that one Yale professor said this of William Wilberforce. He said, The abolitionists demonstrated that religion and conscience can be a force for good in the world, that the darkest instincts and destructive interests of humanity can sometimes be overcome, and that foreign policy idealism is possible and powerful. While there's little evidence that human nature has changed for the better over the past two millennia, a few historical events like Britain's abolition of its extremely profitable slave trade suggest that human history has also been something more than an endless contest of greed and power. What is he saying? He's saying every now and then a group of Christians get it right and they work in politics to bring about such good. So listen to me. We are called to obey laws, to pay taxes, to encourage our leaders, to pray for our leaders, to pray for our president. That is our biblical call. But number two, just like Christians should recognize and obey government, Christians should recognize and disobey government. We should. Now you're about to see where skillful discipleship comes in because you got to know which areas to obey and which areas to disobey. Okay, This is where skillful Jesus' discipleship comes in. Let me talk for a moment. Look at verse 17. Where did you get this theology? Give to God what is God. So Jesus said government is legitimate and you should pay taxes you don't even agree with to oppress you more. And then he turns around and says those... Taxations and those claims have limits. There are places, Jesus says, where Caesar's claims are not valid in the life of a believer. Listen, Christians can obey the state, but we don't worship the state. No nation or system led by humans will ever be worthy of full compliance from humans. You will never be fully compliant to any system led by another human being, and Jesus knows that. And he also knows that not all delegated authority, before you go running around using Romans 13 on everybody, not all delegated authority facilitates the work of God okay? Because we see this in Acts 4. In Acts 4, the religious authorities, what do they tell the disciples? Don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus again. Don't you do it. Now, somebody could jump in and say, hey, listen, Paul, Romans 13 says all authorities are governed by God. You should do what they say. But you know what they say to the the, the emperor, the leaders? They say, hey, you you do with us what you will, but we can't help but speak and talk about the things which we've seen and heard. So they're saying, hey, guys, you can't bear witness to Jesus. And they say, sorry, we're going to bear witness anyways. So there are times as believers, We must resist the government. Now, how do we know when government is working, or wrong, I should say, and should be opposed with civil disobedience? Well, it's simple and it's complex. Lean in for a moment. When the government commands something morally wrong, a Christian has a moral obligation to resist it. There is the legitimate form of government, and there's the broken form of government. And I want you to hear me, and I I wrote these words down, and I'm not deviating from these words because this is so theologically and politically charged. I want to be very clear here. Civil disobedience is a nuanced, thoughtful thing. It's not two middle fingers to the POTUS. It's not throwing cocktails and burning cities down. It is not burning buildings down. It is a thoughtful, theologically informed willingness to suffer the punishment of the disobedience based in humility, based in Christlikeness, and based in conviction. And listen to me. I love the activist spirit of this generation, current. But I don't love the spirit with which they are active because much of it is based in hatred and anger and self-righteousness. So if I have an activist spirit, but that spirit is a hatred, anger, anger, angered, self-righteous spirit, I'm already wrong. Romans 13 does exist in the same Bible as Revelation 13. And Revelation 13, next slide, is about the worldly government, the beast that comes out of the sea to oppress God's people. So watch this. Our civil disobedience should happen, but it happens in multiple categories. It happens around the issue of sexual immorality. It happens around the issue of power. It happens around the issue of money. And things will happen that require Christians to resist the state. But when we do so, we should do so with humility and with a willingness to suffer. I want to say I think Dr. King's spirit seems missing in today's protest. The spirit of love and joy and the spirit of Christ, it's missing. And I can think of nobody who modeled this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the Nazi regime. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, amazing. I read a book just recently called A Strange Glory. And Bonhoeffer died at the hands of the state for a plot that he was involved in to execute Hitler. Now, Bonhoeffer was a complete pacifist. Can I ask you a question? How does a pacifist... Become an assassin. I'm not going to answer that question. Go read the book. You'll see how it does. But it is amazing. The pacifist becomes an assassin and he was killed for his faith. But watch this. When he followed through on his convictions, it wasn't finger to Hitler, it wasn't finger to both, you know, both fingers to the president. His life and his suffering were his message. This was the camp doctor. Not a Christian said this about Bonhoeffer. He watched Bonhoeffer get his head chopped off. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by how this unusually lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then he climbed the steps to the gallows. Brave and composed, his death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a camp doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. His life and suffering were his protest. This is the posture. So look at me. Christians have conviction that resists, but humility that suffers. Christians have conviction that resists, but humility that suffers. John Howard Yoder wrote a book called The Politics of Jesus. How do you preach a message called Politics of Jesus, Politics of Man without quoting the man who wrote the book, Politics of Jesus? So this is what he said He said, The believer's cross is no longer any and every kind of suffering, sickness, or tension, the bearing of which is demanded. The believer's cross must be like his Lord's, the price of his social nonconformity. It's not like sickness or catastrophe or inexplicable, unpredictable suffering. It's the end of the path freely chosen after counting the cost. Now, he's going to insult my heroes of the faith, but I'll hang on to him. It's not like Luther's or Thomas Munzner's or Zinzendorf's or Kierkegaard's cross, an inward wrestling of the sensitive soul with self and sin. It is the social reality of representing in an unwilling world the order to come. (laughs) And we forget that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, which literally meant be willing to live your faith with such conviction that you're willing to die at the hands of the state. But we apply it to our theological crosses. That's not what Jesus was saying. Live your life with such conviction, you will be crucified at the hands of people I've appointed. People I've delegated. So in the book Called the City of Man, Gershner writes Jesus was executed, in part an enemy of the state. Contemporary leaders, political and religious, found his otherworldly kingdom threatening because it demanded obedience to an authority beyond their own. Jesus' followers were soon being executed for failing to show proper respect, that's refusing to offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor. In the Roman world, Christians challenged the political status quo on any number of issues, including slavery and infanticide and the status of women. Christianity may not have laid out a blueprint for an ideal government, but love your neighbor had social and political consequences. Look at me church, we must not confuse legality with morality and in your lifetime you will watch this government of these United States of America make things legal that are immoral and you will have a choice as a follower of Jesus where to draw the line. I'm not as your pastor called to tell you individually where you draw every line. But Christians have to acknowledge the state and submit to the state. But Christians have to acknowledge the state and resist it. And the nuance in the middle is where we we need skillful discipleship. And when we do this, what do we do it as? We do it as number three and finally, exiles. Christians do this as exiles. Everybody say exiles. exiles. Now what Jesus is teaching here is a revolution. Their belief was God had one nation, there was one form of legitimate government, and it was God ruling his people. And Jesus says, not anymore, not so fast. Now, you got to understand what Jesus is saying. Israel had a covenant with God to bless their nation. But in the kingdom of God, in the new covenant, Christians don't get that same covenant. Look at me. We get a better covenant, but we don't get that covenant. This means, listen to me, That there are Christians in every nation, but there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Hear Hear me clearly. There are Christians in every nation, but there's no such thing as a Christian nation. What do you mean? As influenced as America was by Christianity and our founding fathers, this is not a Christian country. Why? Because there's no Christian covenant for a nation to call God to account on when we pray we can't go to god and call god to an account that he made for our country cuz he didn't do that the quest and hear me and this is where i get pushed back the quest to reclaim some kind of idealized past of american history actually will be dangerous to our witness moving forward when we say we're taking america back america never was Yes, America may have Judeo-Christian values, and yes, we may be moving from them, but America is not a Christian nation because there's no covenant to call God to account of of that Christian nation. What are you saying, Craig? Jamin Goggin, this is what he said. He said, In a culture drunk on power in need of an intervention, the church has too often become a neighbor. In many places, churches openly affirm the way from below. Instead of being told how desperately I am in need of God, I'm repeatedly told in America how much God needs me. So because we are not trying to control the world and bring in a Christian theocracy, we should be very wary of seizing power and trying to make the state Christian. We should be very wary of that. Why? Because the abuses that happen with holy wars and the abuses that happen with crusades and the abuses that happen with inquisitions, the church cannot be seduced by worldly power. I remember visiting the White House a couple years ago and it was awesome. I remember the rush of adrenaline and to be in the halls of power and to think, woo, I'm in the halls of power. Meredith and I are walking through the White House. It was intoxicating. And you say, Craig, why do you say that? I say that a bit comically to address a reality, and that's this, the seduction of power that's evident for Christians in America. Christians believe that we can thrive in any form of government and that we are always to have a posture of honoring and resisting at the same time. And here's where I'm telling us church, anytime we only embrace one or the other, all all, uh, obedience or all resistance, anytime we do that, we are in danger of distorting our witness and our message. So Scott Saul says this, he says, when those in power made Christianity the state religion, the church began its decline towards irrelevance. Look at me, church. Christians are now part of a global community and body that is not embodied in any one government any one place, or any one nation. Listen to me. Exodus 19 said you will be a special nation, but now there are no special nations. There are Christians who are special in every nation. And I'm not undermining any and all of people who've paid the ultimate price for our democracy. That is not an undermining statement at all but there's no such thing as Christian nations. There's Christians who are in every nation. And this is a major shift for us. In fact, the mission of the Jewish community in Genesis 3 was that all nations would be blessed. And you say, Craig, what does this do? It saves us from civic idolatry. Because we are exiles, we are dual citizens at best, and there is no Mecca for us in the world that we can call home. In fact, Matthew 28 tells us it's our job to disciple nations, not to set up a Christian nation. So, in our cultural moment where an idealized American past is making a claim among some religious groups that we should take this nation back for God, can I just say, as your pastor, we should resist this with humility and get on with the business of making disciples of Jesus. Our goal is not to take our nation back for God, our goal is to make disciples in the way of Jesus in every nation. So our primary loyalty is to the people of God and to the mission of God in the world. Let me say it this way. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. You should have more in common with a Christian in another country than you do with an American who's not a believer. Why? Because that's your priority. This is our primary family, the body of Christ. And this is where it gets challenging. Come on, team. If Jesus says some things belong to Caesar and you should give them to him because his image is on it, the challenge for Christians then becomes this. Whose image is on us? We have the image of God on us, church. And that means Caesar can have his things. But God says, I want all of your life because you are mine and you bear my image. You give to Caesar whatever Caesar's, but you're not Caesar's, you're mine. Your sexuality is mine. Your appetite's mine. The way you eat is mine. The way you work out is mine. The way you work is mine. The way you parent is mine. Because on your coin is the face of Jesus. And we have to give to God what belongs to God. Because you bear the image of God. Because he is stamped on your life. Therefore, give the whole of your life to him. Now, because I'm out of time, tonight at 5 o'clock, when DP Live goes live on our Dwelling Place account, click on my personal Facebook account and I will record point number four. What is that? How do we participate as a church in our complex time? I only have 10 minutes. 10 minutes of some very practical things. If you like it, you feel good with it, share it with other people. God knows we want His Word to continue to form us as the people of God. But I have just two quick thoughts. We, as the church of Jesus, participate with eschatological hope. You know what that means? Eschatological means end times. That means we cannot be too heartbroken by what's happening in America and we cannot be too excited about what's happening in America. There should be space around our hearts of the increase of Jesus' government. There should be no end, the scripture said. So you know what that means? Let's hold back some of our hopes for the age to come and not invest it in any political moment. Let's not get too excited and let's not get too heartbroken by it. Why? Because we have eschatological hope. We have involvement in politics, but we have it with an eschatological hope framework. We lose credibility, church, when we invest in any political ideology as if they're going to save us. And secondly, we should engage with humble conviction. Karl Barth says this. He says the very powerful statement. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts in a way that is full of promise. So we are contradicting the way of the world, but we do it in the way of promising another world. That's what Christians do. We contradict the ways of our nation to invite people and introduce them into a way of a different nation, a different way. And when we do this, we have a different tone. We don't do it with the tone that everybody else does. So Craig, what are you saying? I'm saying, search for the common ground. If you wanna see God move, pray, intercede fast, pray, vote protest, organize, use your rights. That's what you are as a believer in America. But be graceful in your conversation. Transcend the fury of social media arguing. And learn to partner with other people who don't even believe the same things you believe. Why? Because you can't force guilt people into giving money to the poor. Only Jesus can change people's hearts. And only Jesus can change people's perspective about the world that we live in. It's not my job to do that. It's my job to live as a countercultural witness that obeys and recognizes the government in one hand and disobeys and recognizes the government in the other. And I do it as an exile pointing to a greater kingdom, not investing too much of my hope or hatred or anger or hope or higher hope in the world and the political ideology that comes, yet taking my responsible dual citizenship right here in America. That's what it means to be a prophetic witness. God's not interested in us taking our nation back. God's interested in us making disciples of all nations all nations all nations thank you so much for listening to this week's message if you would like more information about our church be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org